Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to the podcast website and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's episode is the seventh and final event for Distant Friends and Intimate Enemies, the U.S. and Russia, the Fall 2020 Speaker Series at the University of Pittsburgh Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies. I really learned a lot on this series of interviews on U.S.-Russia relationships since the 19th century. I hope you did too. If you missed an interview, go to srbpodcast.org. There you'll find a playlist with all my interviews on the United States and Russia. Russian views of America and American views of Russia have been fundamental to shaping relations and, to some extent, each nation's self-image. Russian and American travelers tended to emphasize qualities of the other that their respective nations rejected. Through the other, Russia and America reaffirmed its sense of self. So what is the history of this othering from the 19th century to the present? What role did travel accounts, journalists, diplomats, and scholars play in shaping how Russia and America positioned themselves geopolitically, culturally, and ideologically. Here's Dina Feinberg and Victoria Zhurilova to peel back the many layers of this relationship. Dina Feinberg is an assistant professor in modern history at City University of London. She is a historian of U.S.-Russia relations, Soviet media, and propaganda, and Cold War culture. She's the co-editor of Reconsidering Stagnation, Ideology and Exchange in the Brezhnev Era. Her book, Cold War Correspondence, Soviet and American Reporters on the Ideological Front Lines, will be published in January 2021. Victoria Zhurevlova is a professor of American history and international relations, chair of the American Studies Department, and vice dean of the Faculty of International Relations and Area Studies at the Russian State University for the Humanities in Moscow, Russia. Her field of research is American history with a specialization in Russian-American relations and U.S. foreign policy. She is the author of many books and articles, including Understanding Russia in the United States, Images and Myths, published in Russian, and the editor of Russian-Soviet Studies in the United States, Americaniska in Russia, Mutual Representations in Academic Projects, published in English. Here's Dina Feinberg and Victoria Zhurevlova. So, Dina, Victoria, um, you study U.S.-Russia relations from two different perspectives and in many respects, two different time periods. So I'd like to have you start with start out our discussion, which is have you both of you outline the focus of your research. Uh, Dina, if you'd like to start. Um, so these past 14 years, the focus of my research had been Cold War correspondence. That is 
Soviet and American journalists who travel across the Iron Curtain to report on the rival superpower. Foreign correspondents were very popular. Their reports were incredibly widely circulated and widely read. And for many years, these reports were the nearest that readers could come to actually visit the Soviet Union and the United States. So over the years, kind of for, throughout the 20th century, and more specifically in the Cold War, many pundits and policymakers and ordinary people on both sides came to see the Soviet Union and the United States through their eyes. So my work looks at how journalists represented the Cold War adversary um, and how these representations evolved over the years, how two distinctive sets of ideological convictions and professional practices and political cultures shaped Soviet and American international reporting in the Cold War. And studying this was a gift that keeps giving and gave me insights into all sorts of um, things that I was really interested in from a comparative perspective. So obviously, it sheds light on American and Russian mutual imagination on both sides and how they used each other to think about themselves. It was a very interesting vantage point into the relationship between ideology, mass media, and foreign policy in US-Soviet relations. Um, looking at these people and their lives and their stories showed how individuals who lived through the Cold War and whose personal and professional lives were connected to the Cold War made sense of their experiences and understood the world around them. And how knowledge about self and other was produced, reproduced, and became meaningful in this period. Mm-hmm. And Victoria? So my scholarly field is imagology of Russian-American relations since the end of the 19th century until now. And specific interest is the mutual perceptions of Russians and Americans in correlations with the current agenda and national social cultural traditions. In this case, we are dealing with the self-other position, with the social constructivist approach to study of Russian-American relations. And within this huge scholarly field, my specific interest as a specialist on American studies is the identity construction process in the United States via image of the Russian other. I'm trying to combine uh, different primary sources, uh, I mean both verbal and visual sources. Uh, I'm, I try to analyze uh, political cartoons as primary sources and, and other visual texts. So uh, here in this crossroad of verbal and visual images, I can uh, try to see new perspectives for better understanding what was going and on and what is going on in Russian-American relations. You know, most people, you know, I think, will look at U.S. Russia and say, well, there's, come on, these are two really different societies. Uh, you know, what kind of comparison can you make between them and, and what do you get from it? So, you know, given that this series is a, basically about this issue, right? And to look at more of the, the, this relationship of how both of you would deal with it, self and other, but also concurrent historical developments, you know, like serfdom and slavery, et cetera. Um, what do you get from this? Like what attracts you to this comparison and, and why compare these two seemingly disparate societies and political systems? Uh, Victoria? I would like to compare Russia and America because 
since the end of the 19th century, the Russian-American other was and, and uh, still is playing a significant role in identity discourse on both sides of the Atlantic. And comparison with these other gave and still give opportunity to emphasize own advantages or shortcomings. Because throughout the history of their bilateral relations, Russians and Americans have been inspired by each other's experience and uh, have been tempted to use it for their own ends or present it as a type of ideal. Uh, in the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, reformers and revolutionaries from the Decembrist and Narodniks to Soviet dissidents and supporters of perestroika felt the American allure, American charm of political freedom. Those who dreamed of the economic modernization of the country were ready to absorb the lessons of American capitalism. In turn, familiarity with a culture of jazz, Hollywood movies, and ab abstractionism allowed Soviets to find means of self-expression outside the dictates of socialist realism. From my point of view, this was a dialogue about freedom, political, economic, and individual. In the United States, supporters of left-wing ideologies absorbed the social message of the Russians, making real or virtual excursions to their revolutions, while fellow travelers sympathized with the socialist experiment as a type of ideal. Although, and I would like to emphasize uh, this, they did not want anything similar in the United States. Those advocating for the emancipation of women looked to Soviet Russia as an example to be emulated. From my point of view, in turn, it was a dialogue about justice in its various manifestations. And Dina, what, what do, in your work and in your general interest in this, what, what do you get from the, why compare these two places? So I think you nailed it at the beginning when you said that the usual response is why compare them. And this is certainly the kind of response that I got, especially when you study the press, right? So like, what do you mean? They're not comparable. Um, and the conversation is specifically about the economy. So it was free versus censored, objective, ideological, truth and propaganda or lies. And um, first of all, I found this deeply unsatisfactory from an intellectual standpoint. And I also believe that that kind of binary thinking is a legacy of the Cold War in itself. And so I wanted to try and transcend these binaries in my work. Um, so in the process, I got to learn a great deal about this binary thinking in itself. Why does it work? How these binaries developed and became entrenched over time? I think that finding thematic and structural similarities in Soviet and American international reporting does not erase the differences between the Soviet Union and the US, but it gives a much more nuanced sense of what the differences were and what the similarity wears and helps to understand both better. Victoria kind of explained what the larger significance was for each side kind of vis-a-vis -vis the other. And so again, studying them comparatively also helps to see how they borrow from another, how they influence one another, and just gain better insights into this process. You know, both of you have this like this issue or analytical framework of self and other. And when when I think about this, 
you know, in the relationship between the United States and Russia, and it's not just the United States and Russia, this happens in a lot of uh, relations between societies and states where you look at the other society, say in this case, Russia, and what you what you take from it is either is some kind of either distorted reflection of yourself, that is all the things you want to not be, or you see yourself in that reflection. So it's a kind of a narcissistic endeavor. Um, Dino, talk about this relationship between self and other and how this analytical framework serves serves your research. So they are absolutely where perceptions of the other were key for developing self-understanding and negative descriptions of the other highlight all the things that the other side held positive about themselves. And actually these descriptions help to articulate what was positive and unique. So in the process of describing the other, you actually are flashing out yourself and kind of showing what it is that we are about and what way we are better than them. So that so I think these kind of having this like very concrete example and model, if you will, really grounded self-understanding and make people feel good about their own political cultures and their daily lives. And we know that the daily lives of most people in the Soviet Union or in the United States were a far cry from what the called the propaganda, called the propaganda posters said that they were. Um, and these stories show that even if socialist utopia or the American dream were not yet delivered, there was a great deal of progress that has already made, that there are values and ideas of our side were superior to their side and our ideas would is what would help humanity unlock its true potential. And I think these were very powerful messages that empower people and kind of cultivated sense of pride in what they are and what their countries are countries are during this time. Yeah, Victoria, you know, your your research takes place bef mostly before 1917. And, and I find this uh, the 19th century relationship between the United States and Russia incredibly fascinating. First, because there's it's not a focus of a lot of thinking about U.S.-Russia relations. Um, most people don't think there were U.S.-Russia relations until 1917 in many respects. Um, what was this interplay? Talk about this role of self and other in the, the 19th century and, and how it worked at, at this period where, in fact, the United States and Russia were had basically friendly relations. Uh, I would like to appeal to historical examples uh, from the first crisis in Russian-American relations, I mean 1903-1905, because uh, it was a very uh, interesting period in Russian-American relations and in mutual perceptions. And uh, using this example, I would like to explain how uh, their perception of the other helped for better understanding of uh, themselves, of ourselves. Uh, during this period, this first crisis in Russian-American relations, the Russian other was integrated into the analysis of the U.S. domestic and foreign policy agenda of the American society. On the one hand, parallels between Russia and the United States were drawn in order to criticize Russia or the domestic policy in the United States or foreign policy of the United States itself. But on the other hand, uh, these parallels have been used in order to demonstrate that the United States, in spite of its uh, imperfections and social conflicts, remained a bastion of freedom and democracy in comparison of the Russian Empire. Uh, 
First, debates about the nature of Russia's imperialist policy were in correlation with the debates inside the American society between the anti-imperialist and the advocates of transforming the United States into a world power. Then, the problem of anti-Semitism in the Russian Empire correlated with the racism issue in the United States. Comparisons between anti-Jewish pogroms and lynching were in the center of the political debates both in the Russian Empire and in the United States. Uh, mass social disturbances in the Russian Empire during the 1905 revolution were compared to the social unrest in the United States, especially to events in Chicago, the city that became the center of the workers' movement. So American Russophiles in the Aton pointed to the social unrest in Chicago in order to highlight that the Americans who criticized Russians would do well to pay more attention to the events at home. Meanwhile, the conservative press used it in their critique of political radicalism in the United States in order to show that this phenomenon was completely aligned to the American model of development and was brought by immigrants. Uh, and in general, the revolution of 1905 provided a new and overtones for the analogy between the abolition of slavery in the United States and serfdom in Russia. In this case, I mean political serfdom in Russia. Although opposition, American freedom, Russian political slavery appeared in American discourse about Russia, thanks uh, to the uh, friends of Russian freedom at the end of the 19th century, during the first crisis, uh, it uh, became the core of uh, political debates. The image of Abraham Lincoln was established as a third reference for all occasions when Americans had to form an idea about the current figure that liberated the Russian people from the shackles of political and spiritual slavery, be it Sergei Vite in 1905, be it Pavel Melukov in 1917, Alexander Solzhenitsyn in 1974, or Boris Yeltsin in 1991. And my another short uh, example is from the Cold War period. Uh, I would like to remind you that uh, Soviet propaganda uh, made it possible to emphasize the superiority of the Soviet Union over the opposition using dichotomies. For example, pacifism versus militarism, internationalism versus racism, social guarantees versus unemployment and poverty. These juxtapositions were integrated into publications in the press, academic and popular literature, posters and cartoons, Soviet theater films, and even documentaries. What strikes me about this, one of the central issues in this relationship is this issue of justice and freedom. Right. You know, you can look at, like you said, Victoria, the Decembrists who are modeling their potential constitution on the American Constitution. Uh, the Soviets, even in their denunciation of American capitalism, are trying to promote their own self as more just and more free. Um, or in your case, Dina, um, you know, looking at the Soviet Union from the American perspective has a long tradition. And David Forlingzong. Uh, pointed this out in his wonderful book, American Mission in the uh, 
evil empire, uh, this desire to free Russia from itself. Um, I'd like to, to, to have you both talk about this issue of the central issue of freedom from this perspective of, on the one hand, aspiration, and then on the other hand, this strange American idea of trying to save Russia from itself. Uh, Dina, you can start. So it's very interesting to me that um, when Americans thought about the Cold War, and that goes for my protagonists and kind of the people who read them and that they engage with them, they constantly thinking in these dichotomies of freedom versus oppression. And so the United States represents the cause of freedom and the Soviet Union represents, you know, this, the dangers of oppression. This is especially central in discourse of the press and how Americans talk about their own press and about the Soviet press. And this distinction between freedom and oppression plays a huge role in the Cold War portrayals of U.S. and the Soviet Union overall, and specifically um, in the press. I, I don't think that the Soviets ever had such an equivalent. Uh, that is, they obviously took the moral high ground, and then they thought, they kind of, they obviously evoked their own press as free press, but what the Soviets were more interested in is this binary of uh, war and peace, and how the warmongering American press um, kind of brings humanity to the brink of another war, whereas the peace-loving Soviet press promotes friendship among people and kind of mutual understanding, etc. And and these, there was this clash of how they both view the press and the kinds of dichotomies that they operated and looking at each other. Um, and I don't know, like I don't think that Soviets, the Russia had this equivalent of the United States that such broad policy-oriented coalition of establishment and voluntary organizations that came together to liberate Russia. And you mentioned David Fogelson's excellent book, and he has shown over and over again how this coalition, um, so this Victoria in her works, how these coalitions come together uh, time and again, that has like a very distinct policy angle that does not necessarily exist in the Soviet Union. So obviously, Soviets uh, thought about the causes that they found relatable and instances that they found despicable, but they never, and they certainly took the moral high ground and proposed solutions to American problems and offered Russia as a model, but they certainly did not kind of begin any movement of saving America from itself. Uh, Victoria, you know, I, I remember reading a collection, there's a, a old collection of American views of, uh, of Russia. And, and I remember, you know, thinking about how far this idea goes back, this dichotomy between uh, freedom and slavery. Uh, uh, you know, the young John Quincy Adams, when he was uh, in Russia, when he was like 14 or 16 years old, writes a letter to his mother expressing this this dichotomy itself whereas you know seeing the russian people as a, from top to bottom whether they're nobles or peasants as slaves to the tsar um talk about this this issue of freedom and and despotism and how it functions and the desire of course as as, as dina talked about already to you know save russia uh, thank you very much for this very interesting but very complicated question. Uh, so, uh, from my point of view, if we are talking about American case, 
their brightest illustration is the deception of Russian revolutions. Uh, uh, be it uh, the first Russian revolution of 1905-1907 or February and October revolutions or the collapse of the Soviet Union as some kind of revolution. Uh, I agree with Dina that uh, David Fogelson wrote about this discourse of freedom versus despotism in very bright uh, Mena, uh, what I would like to emphasize uh, is that it watched the Russian Revolution, the American society lived through its cycles of hopes concerning the prospects of Russia's modernization or westernization and disappointments with its results. Uh, as a consequence, the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, uh, post-Soviet Russia became the object of the U.S. world reform and mission. Uh, when the cycle was on the upswing, it was a rule dominated by liberal universalist myths that framed the image of the romantic Russian other. What kind of romantic images? About the Russian's ability to carry out Western-type revolutions and to create it, the United States of Russia. About the essentially democratic Russian society that was dominated by the xenophobic and retrograde government. And about the Americans taking an important part in the process of reforming Russia. But when the cycle was on the downswing, the romantic image of Russia replaced by the demonic one, by Russophobic myths, uh, about the Russian political system as essentially authoritarian due to the peculiarities of the Russian national character. About Russia's imperials, uh, uh, imperial ambitions that had negative consequences for the US foreign policy interests. About how Russia had strayed from the right path of freedom and the United States in its turn missed opportunity to save Russia from itself and again lost Russia, again and again. Uh, but when you asked about the uh, Soviet side, and Dina mentioned that she uh, uh, can't find opportunity to illustrate uh, using Soviet or Russian example, I thought that maybe uh, we can say about Soviet anti-racial propaganda, that had real impact on U.S. domestic policy in the 1960s and the civil rights movement. I would like to remind you that it was one of the factors that pushed President Lyndon Johnson to support civil rights uh, legislation for African Americans so vigorously. And uh, by the way, even at the beginning of the Cold War, Gary Truman used this argument, I mean, uh, Soviet anti-racial propaganda, in order to segregate the U.S. Army. So it could be, could be, example of how the Soviet Union helped to save America from itself in the sphere of racial discrimination. Uh, and I think about example from uh, our days. By the way, in today Russia, Trump's supporters perceive that he is the single leader who can save America from itself. 
from its liberal global mission, from its false tolerance and political correctness, from the consequences of multiculturalism, and so on and so far. Yeah, we'll definitely get uh, more to our, our present situation at, towards the end of the interview. Adina, do you want to add something? Yeah, I was, I was just as Vicky was talking, I was absolutely struck by how presentist that sounds, right? The concerns about Russia and that cycle of disappointments and hopes and, and issues. I mean, you would be describing kind of yesterday's narrative as opposed to this. It's just a kind of an amazing thing to observe, I think, and pause and reflect on. I agree that U.S. obviously worries a great deal about Soviet propaganda on race, on Vietnam, uh, on they worried about what Soviet propaganda is saying about the United States and constantly are preoccupied by this. But uh, and yeah, we can make arguments whether or not like the Soviets helped America save itself. But again, I wanted to emphasize that there is no such thing as an effort to save America, because it is moral criticism, it is a high ground, it is indictment, but it's not, let's us get together and reach out to these American people in the United States and help them save their country and liberate themselves from the shackles of capitalism. Yes, yes, I agree with you. Uh, I agree with you, Adina. Uh, in this sense, of course not, but um, we can find uh, specific characters in different discourses inside Soviet, the Soviet Union, or for example, post-Soviet Russia. And in this case, we are dealing with the same American other, uh, with the same pair American other uh, Russian self. You, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of, and I've been thinking about this, this, you know, exactly what you point to, Dina, um, repeatedly. And I, I can't, I have to say, I can't really wrap my head around it. Um, so it, what, how do you explain this tendency on the American side to have this universalist mission to transform, you know, and of course, not just Russia, but we're just talking about Russia now to, to really like, you know, make it make Russia into an image of itself. Like, for example, Victoria mentioned this wonderful phrase from um, William Walling from the late from the early 20th century of creating a United States of Russia. And I found this an incredibly striking image. How do you explain how, how do you understand this tendency on the one hand to save Russia, this mission? But on the other hand, you don't have Russia really in the same way as you said? I think on the American part, it has to do with American exceptionalism and how the United States has seen itself historically as this beacon for others, the city up on the hill and kind of manifest destiny and all these examples. So historically, this is part of American political culture and American understanding of itself has been historically that it is there to serve as the model, as an inspiration and kind of, you know, the top of the development ladder where everyone should aspire to become. Like it, it's uh, in, in many ways, it's Protestant, it's pretty Christian, I guess, kind of Christian Protestant. It's also very kind of, it has like a very clear racist supremacy embedded in this and, and and but this is part of american self-imagination and had been this way since the united states turned outward and you can arguably say that part of u.s inward expansion so kind of westward expansion and all that was premised again on these ideas and when the united states became kind of an international actor these ideals moved into its foreign policy and i think 
traces of them are still there. I mean, certainly in you know Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, kind of, and up until very recently, um, we see these things. Um, I don't think. I don't think there is a Russian cultural equivalent to this. I mean, obviously, Moscow, the certain force, Rome is not the same. And it imagines kind of Russia as a place that people would come in to learn from, if you will. That will be, be that would be kind of connector and friend, I guess, uh, protector of particular values. And so in the Soviet times, that was these kind of ideas of internationalism and brotherhood of men. Um, more recently, Russia styles itself as a beacon of conservative values and kind of the protector of, you know, conservative values. So this is taps into anti-gay propaganda and things like that. So I think these are very different conceptions of what the nation is about, the nation's relationship to the world and what makes it unique. Uh, Victoria, what, what is your opinion on this? Uh, I, I would like only to emphasize that I agree with Dina that uh, here we are dealing with the different nature of messianism, I mean, American and Russian. Uh, and of course, this is the uh, identity discourse and uh, uh, political and social cultural traditions in both countries. Uh, if uh, uh, we would like to generalize uh, these discourse, we can say that uh, this is uh, a liberal universalist mission versus a conservative mission. Uh, and uh, uh, in this case, uh, uh, and in this context, uh, we need to take into account self-representations, of course, traditions and self-representation, different natures of uh, messianic ideas uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. That is why here is the explanation. Now, Dina, you have this this book coming out about journalists, um, and of course, journalists aren't the only uh, people who travel to both, you know, both Russian journalists to the United States and Americans to Russia, and and really developing the discourse of how each nation deals with each other. Um, journalists play a really important role, but there are others, whether they be tourists or diplomats or immigrants. Um, talk about the the specific role that journalists play in crafting a. a understanding of each country so journalists i mean are really really huge they have large readership their columns are published and republished and local press and national press and circulate to the farthest corners so sometimes you would see an article about russia published in the new york times and two months later it's in some local georgian newspaper that has like five thousand readers um they also publish books that were very widely read and kind of, again, through these books, they, um, these books become read by, you know, local book clubs and journalists travel and give book talks and kind of spread their, they're, they're beloved and widely recognized as experts because they write well, they tell interesting stories, they are engaging, they are on television, on the radio. Um, and so they enter local communities, um, and foreign policy establishment. I mean, there's nobody who doesn't read journalistic reports, both in the Soviet Union and in the United States. And on both sides, there was what I call the, the knowledge milieu. So these are networks of usually male uh, academics, diplomats, and journalists who exchange knowledge and information about the rival superpower and kind of um, 
use this information in, in their own work and kind of feed off each other. So scholarship and policy and journalism effectively tap into same conversations and journalists become, I argue from the beginning of the Cold War, really, really important experts uh, on Soviet affairs who are recognized as such, both by the general public and by the policy community. Uh, and what, what respect do you see a certain feedback loop? Because I, I kind of, one of my things I love to do is look at footnotes. And I'm always struck how there, there's a certain circular character to the footnotes where, um, you know, a journalist is, is referencing, and I saw this actually in the Mueller report. There's a lot of this circular, circular referencing. Do you see, you know, how do, do you see this in your research and, and what does it, you talk about it? Oh, absolutely. So journalists before before they go to Moscow uh, or to the Soviet Union, journalists spend time, sorry, before they go to the Soviet Union or the United States, journalists spend time um, in these uh, think tanks that both sides have. So these research institutes and these academic kind of establishments, especially U.S. journalists who are trained in kind of so the universities and programs for Soviet and Russian studies that we know and much love were places where foreign correspondents oftentimes trained and learned the Russian language. And so they would then hear uh, academics who are currently experts in their field and kind of get their wisdom together with learning the Russian language. That Then they would come back to these establishments to give talks. Um, they would their books would be read and assigned on undergraduate courses in political science or history. Um, and so there is that loop kind of, so there is that, that journalism academia nexus, which is very fruitful. There is also kind of a sep, kind of a policy nexus. So we know that foreign policy, foreign policymakers tapped into academic knowledge production about the Soviet Union throughout the Cold War. And this has been done by David Engerman and others. And so again, journalists kind of work with that milieu as well. So they know diplomats quite often. They serve together in foreign posts and they meet each other. In the Soviet Union, most of these people, uh, whether policymakers and journalists, they all graduate from one university, that is Moscow State Institute for International Relations and Gimo. And so again, there are these like lifelong friendships and milieus of exchange of information. So journalists would contribute insights and share information with diplomats and foreign policymakers, these would be kind of circulated out kind of upward. So you see, you know, Soviet journalists participate in um, Soviet leaders' speech writing teams, especially on foreign affairs. American journalists, uh, you know, their work has been cited in the congressional records and uh, in various kind of presidential briefings. And so there is a lot of exchange and circulation and friendships that kind of, uh, function in kind of where knowledge is produced and reproduced. I think one of the most interesting things is to what extent the reporting of American correspondence wants to make references to history and to kind of locate whatever it is they're observing in, you know, the specific specificity, specificity sorry, of uh, Russian history and kind of how history conditioned Soviets and Russians to be how they are. So this is like a very clear historical thinking that comes from academic currents at the time in the Soviet Union, you see journalists that make these like socio-political analysis, kind of analyzing, you know, like the social structure of the United States, the capital and the relationships between kind of the oppressors and the oppressed. So again, you see kind of very, how kind of knowledge gleaned from elsewhere than reports 
in sorry, informs their reporting on the other side and grounds it. And then that kind of knowledge gets then transmitted onward and becomes kind of more popular and reaches popular audiences and wide readership, way wider readership than academia would. Victoria, in your work, what are some of the, these figures that inform the image of, uh, of the United States and Russia? Um, of course, I agree uh, with Dina and I agree with the idea uh, about the role of journalists and diplomats from, diplomats from both sides and, of course, travelers. But I would like to add that the Russian immigrants played the special role in the image construction process in the United States. Uh, there are waves of Russian immigration change in composition, but the image of America as the promised land uh, as the land of equal opportunities for everyone who went there in search of happiness remained just as alluring. And besides of it, uh, it were people-to-people contacts. There were people-to-people contacts during cultural exchanges and exhibits, be it the Soviet exhibits in New York in 1939 or in 1959, or the American exhibit in Sokolniki. Russians and Americans beginning in the 19th century went across the ocean on tours, showing off the scenes of their, uh, or, or scenes they were proud of, and that were suitable for export, uh, whether high culture or forecut, as it was in the Russian case, or mass culture and innovation in the art, as it was in American case. Musicians, dancers, singers, and artists became cultural diplomats, building bridges of understanding and removing obstacles created by ideology and uh, uh, politics, raising their curtain on another world. I would like to remind you the role of impresario Saul Yurek, who was a Russian-Jewish immigrant, Solomon Israelovich Gurkov, and who was a key figure of Soviet-American cultural exchanges, or the Soviet tour of Everman Opera in uh, 1955. These black artists presented George Gershwin's opera Porgy and Bess in Leningrad, or the performance of Igor Moiseev's folk dance uh, ensemble in 1958, or the victory of the American pianist Van Cliburn at the first international Tchaikovsky competition in Moscow. So the role of citizen and cultural diplomats were very important and are very important. And uh, we need to take into account this uh, impact and their roles when we are talking about mutual perceptions. Um, I'd like to add, uh, and this is something I recently discovered in doing some research for something I'm working on, the Joe Adamov, who had this wonderful radio show in the 60s, 70s, and 80s called Moscow Mailbag, where he would uh, feel he would, they would get questions from Americans uh, and he would answer them. And it was things like, you know, what types of pets are popular in the Soviet Union and these things? So, Dina, do you have something to add? So there was a show like this in uh, the early 1950s, uh, it was one of CBS's first correspondence after kind of Stalin's death, if maybe not the first, but kind of certainly was Irvin Levine, who had this show where 
audiences would email, email, would send letters uh, asking questions about Russia and things like, do Soviets have pets? Do they drop? Is that true that they drop propaganda materials uh, onto Russia directly from airplanes? And kind of really interesting questions that shows um, kind of these letters capture like rare moments of what it is that Americans knew or wanted to know about the Soviet Union, you know, after the first kind of uh, years of a high Cold War. I wanted to add that journalists were among the people who participated in all sorts of exchanges. So there was like a very vibrant exchange between Soviet and American journalists where American uh, diplomats would go to visit Soviet journalists in Moscow to ask all sorts of questions and kind of to get, you know, their opinion about what's, what's the future of South American relations, what do they... What do they think? Where do they think things are going? Just to ask them kind of what's going on. And same would be among kind of with Soviet correspondent stations in the United States. So journalists became also kind of another channel in these exchanges and uh, these citizen diplomacy channels that um, swap information from one side and then essentially contribute to a more to a better image and more nuanced understanding of the other side. We'll try to. One of my postgraduate students is working on a very uh, interesting PhD dissertation uh, about uh, emotion in the context of Soviet-American relations uh, during and after the Caribbean crisis. And she, uh, uh, Victoria, uh, her name is Victoria, and she found a huge bunch of uh, letters in uh, Russian archive, uh, letters of American citizens who sent their letters to Nikita Khrushchev and who tried to explain Nikita Khrushchev, what does it mean to live in this dangerous world? And so it's it's such a huge uh, context for better understanding uh, and we are dealing with absolutely another level of perception uh, here in this case. So uh, I suppose that a historian of mutual perceptions and a historian uh, uh, of uh, Russian-American relations and Soviet-American relations have a big opportunity to discover new primary sources for better understanding what was going on in mind and hearts of uh, people on the both sides of the Atlantic before the Cold War, during the Cold War, and of course now. Uh, here's a question from the chat. Um, uh, what about uh, broadcast journalism um, in the sense that, uh, you know, and in, in the person who's asking, Mark Trotter, who's asking the ex- uh, uh, question, he says, in his experience, Russian TV news programming devotes far more attention to the U.S. than the, the United States does about Russia. And he says this, this even extends beyond so you know hard news, hard political news. He says a Russian viewers annually see coverage of U.S. holiday traditions like Black Friday <laughs> or Fourth of July hot dog eating contests, etc. And, 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 you know, American viewers don't necessarily get uh, much of an insight into these, you know, strange quirks of, of Russian tradition. Um, can you both of you comment on this phenomenon? I think so. I think disparity in coverage and amount of representation and how much people get to learn about the other from the media was persistently raised in the Cold War or throughout the Cold War period. 
uh, effectively, Soviets were accusing the Americans for not say of not saying enough about the Soviet Union, not making enough effort to inform the readers and viewers about what the Soviet Union was really like. And there are from late eighties, kind of during perestroika time, there are really, really fascinating debates about uh, what this means and whose fault it is. Um, kind of this disparity. And so the American response to that would be consistently throughout the years is that we have free television and free press so our viewers can choose whatever they want and it's a free market but soviet viewers are only forced to watch whatever is given to them uh, so it's not our fault that american people don't want to see that stuff and and this kind of that retort was effectively you know wrapped and reiterated throughout um the Cold War and again certainly when when television was um, much more widespread on both sides. I think also kind of it should be acknowledged that American journalists could not report, broadcast journalists could not report from the Soviet Union as they would from other locations. There's a huge difference between print journalists and uh, broadcast journalists who were constantly followed. There would be kind of very, very heavily manhandled in terms of what they could and could not film, where they could and could not film. There are a lot of instances of films being confiscated, uh, censored, disappeared, journalists were threatened and intimidated. And so it was like a pretty strong, it was like a conventional knowledge among the profession that broadcast journalism from the Soviet Union cannot get cover as much ground and cannot do as much depth in terms of reporting because of all these Soviet restrictions. And again, that goes both for radio and for TV correspondents who heavily depended on the Soviets in terms of facilities and equipment, something that print journalists did not have. And maybe that also played in the way if kind of t television is the main medium of engaging with the outside world in the second half of the 20th century, then that could be one of the reasons why Americans have not seen as much of the Soviet Union on their screens. Maybe some words. Uh, I agree that uh, uh, during the Cold War, it was uh, a symmetric character of uh, broadcasting in the Soviet Union. Uh, if we're talking about the image of the other, if we're talking about the Soviet Union and the United States, uh, because of the Iron Curtain, uh, I mean, uh, in, uh, Iron Information Curtain, and because of the different possibilities. That is why it was so important in the end of the Cold War for Soviet uh, people to see these documentaries America with Taratuta because it was example uh, it was one of the bright uh, example of how multifaceted image of the United States uh, began to uh, create uh, in uh, Soviet broadcasting uh, and uh, talking about the nowadays situation, of course, uh, I can say uh, that for young people who are ready to use uh, and middle-aged people who are ready to use, uh, and even old generation uh, who are ready to use internet, uh, they are a market of opinion. Market of opinion, because uh, not only state-controlled media can produce these images of the United States, but internet, but mass uh, uh, social media as well. Uh, different images, uh, 
political cartoons, memes, stripes, uh, videos uh, uh, can be found uh, can be found in internet. Uh, so, uh, in comparison with the situation during the Cold War, we uh, can see now uh, absolutely another uh, example of. Uh, um, broadcasting and the influence of broadcasting on uh, uh, on Russians' perception of the United States. This is your choice. What kind of broadcasting uh, are you going to use? Yeah, I, I just thought about it that I think in generally kind of, I think it's generally true and has been shown by a bunch of scholars in our field that Soviets were genuinely very interested in Americans much more than Americans were interested in the Soviet in Soviets. And you know, you can see this in all sorts of periods and realms. Um, partially that had to do with this um, notion of Soviet internationalism, which encouraged people to be interested in foreign cultures and people. Kind of a marker of a cultured person in the Soviet Union was a person who you know understands the politics of Spain and knows to name the presidents of the United States. And I think that legacy and that ethos created and facilitated a lot of outward engagement and a lot of interest in foreign countries. And so be it uh, literature and documentaries or films and kind of everything, which is different from the way that the United States or American citizens mostly engage with the world. In the perception of uh, American perception and Russian perceptions of each other, a lot of these, of course, are based on tropes. And we, we've talked, you know, you've talked about one of the main ones, which is this dichotomy between freedom and despotism. But what other tropes informed each side's understanding of the other? Uh, Victoria? Very interesting question, <laughs> multi-level question. So, first of all, I would like to emphasize that all these tropes are in correlations with uh, mutual images, of course, with mutual images. In the uh, case, uh, in this case, uh, Russian tropes are the United States as the kingdom of freedom and the promised land. Uh, America is a technological and consumer paradise or the country of the yellow devil, Alia Maxim Gorky, uh, with accent on dehumanizing capitalism. The last two images, uh, I mean, America as a paradise or the yellow devil, illustrate very brightly of how American material culture, which was so celebrated by some, became an object of criticism for others. Uh, this is generally characteristic of images of the U.S. in Russian representations. Depending on the time, the need, and the ideological climate, they could change from positive to negative overnight. Another trope is the United States as a land of racial discrimination. I have already mentioned Soviet propaganda oppositions, pacifism versus militarism, internationalism versus racism, and so on and so far. If we are talking about American Russophiles, this is a soul for expert metaphor. Uh, and the example of pragmatic, friendly image is the image of the United States as allied during World War II. American tropes were in correlations with the romantic, demonic, and pragmatic images of Russia. The American romantic image 
images of Russia, such as Russia as an object of the U.S. mission to remake the world or the Russian Revolution as a movement of the Western type, type under the control of the Russian liberals, or the Russian Soviet people, democratic by nature, awaiting help from the United States to break the change of their political enslavement. So these images were connected with the dichotomies of light and darkness, freedom and slavery, good and evil. We can trace these communicative strategies in American political cartoons via tropes of the kingdom of darkness and the villain empire, or Russia as a huge prison. And in this case, Russia played the role of the U.S. duck twin, uh, which by comparison uh, highlighted the superiority of the American model of the development as uh, David Foglison wrote. During periods of crisis and confrontation, images of the Russian Empire, USSR, post-Soviet Russia as an ideological and geopolitical rival became dominant in American socio-political discourse, be it the communist threat, especially during the Red Scare and during the Cold War period, or negative characteristics of the Russian national character, the trope of immutable Russia. The special role in American imagological discourse played the gallery of personified images of the two-faced leaders of Russia who personify evil and good, the trope of Janus. Uh, images of the Russian Empire, USSR, post-Soviet Russia as an ally and mutually advantageous partner are the examples of pragmatic images. Uh, Dina, I, uh, you know, Victoria has laid out a lot, uh, um, but I'd have ask you to add to it in the sense of maybe give us an example from one of the journalists you 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 focused on and what uh, things they what tropes did they deploy. So it kind of falls within like this beautiful picture that Victoria outlined. Um, I'm thinking about this as uh, modernity versus backwardness as one trope that works both in Soviet journalists and American journalists. And that fits a lot of things. So advanced military technology versus scarcity of consumer goods and uh, squalor of everyday life in the case of Americans looking at the Soviet Union or highly developed economy versus uh, poverty and squalor and class and racial strife when the Soviets look at the United States. And, and that kind of modernity and backwardness nexus plays a lot and applies to many different situations. And there are many stories and examples that are going to feed into this. The other one is false promises. So Soviets would hold that the American dream is a mirage and false consciousness that people are duped into believing. Uh, same Americans would look and say socialist ideology is brainwashing and deceit that again dupes into dupes people into believing this. And underlying the false promises kind of trope is that people are not the same as the government. And this is something that was very interesting and clear throughout the Cold War, that journalists on both sides go to great, kind of take great pains to say that the people are not the same as their government, you know, both in a positive and a negative way. Um, and that ties into they are co-opted into believing the American dream. They are duped by the government. They are forced to, they, they are kind of prisoners of uh, their government's ideologies and government's actions. They, you know, maybe kind of knowing, in, knowing collaborators or innocent collaborators, but that people are not the same. And uh, 
And I think this was a very interesting, it's a very interesting and kind of in a sense positive trope in that it doesn't conceive of the population on the other side as ultimately an enemy and uh, a threat. Sean, I, I have one example uh, to add to uh, uh, Dina's right, uh, um, right uh, explanation of this uh, um, positive trope that uh, people are not the same as the government. Uh, during the uh, Russian famine of 1891-1892, uh, 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 Ivan Ivazovsky uh, prepared picture about the famine fleet, about American famine fleet, uh, about the, the distribution of products that uh, Americans sent uh, to Russian peasants. And during the Cold War, Jacqueline Kennedy demonstrated this picture of Ivan Ivazovsky in order to emphasize that for a long time uh, Americans helped Russian people, but not Russian government. You know, we, uh, in the last couple of years, uh, Russia has played a, a important role in American domestic poli politics. And, and the United States has played a role in, in Russia's domestic politics, too, for a while now as well. But it's things have really ratcheted up uh, in the United States um, since, since the election of Donald Trump. Um, what is, Victoria, how do you understand this phenomenon uh, of Russia taking on this over and, and Vladimir Putin in particular, taking on this oversized role in, in the American domestic sphere? Uh, I, would, I would like to take as an example the presidential, uh, the 2016 presidential campaign, uh, presidential elections, uh, in compare uh, with the uh, 2020 presidential elections, in order to explain, to answer your question, uh, because uh, during the 2016 presidential elections, the Russian other was so clearly front and center in American socio-political uh, discourse because of the deepest point of crisis in Russian-American relations after the annexation of Crimea. And of course, the Cold War heritage helped in this case very much. And because of the serious identity crisis in the United States itself, and the history of Russian-American relations testifies about such a correlation. A Soviet anti-Russian media and partisan consensus led to the growth of anti-Russian sentiment uh, among the American public. Clinton described Trump as a pro-Russian candidate and the threat of America's national security. In his tone, Trump stressed Putin's merits as a political leader, as a way to highlight Obama's deficiencies in that capacities. Both Clinton and Trump then exploited the image of Russia for their own political goals, for domestic plays. Uh, as a result, the anti-Trump consensus also became anti-Russian. And after the Trump's victory, the Democrats continued to use the Russian card in their struggle against Russia. And we saw the Russia Gate in the United States that prevented any efforts to improve Russian-American relations. Uh, Russia became a very negative marker to label Trump as anti-American phenomena. At the same time, the Russian authorities 
uh, uh, and Putin himself and the dissemination of the image of Trump as a friendly other via state-controlled media helped this anti-Russian campaign in the United States and, by the way, vice versa. We did not see the same situation now because of the new domestic and international challenges such as uh, COVID-19 or the threat of economic reduction because of the further polarization and even segmentation inside the American society itself when political opponents see each other as anti-American other. I, I don't believe in possibility of the new civil war, uh, but this we other discuss in its correlation with identity crisis remind me of the situation before the civil war. That is why, by the way, I agree with Biden that the main goal for now is to unify American society. Of course, we will see whether or not he can do it. Yeah, I think kind of I approach this on, on a per, more personal level, I guess, kind of having many friends and family in the United States. I think that um, Trump's nomination was really shocking to many Americans. And um, <clears throat> so it seems that many people found it really hard to reconcile with the idea that your neighbor or your friend or your family member would consciously choose to support this candidate. At, at the same time, Social media played a truly sinister role in the 2016 elections in a way that was new and unprecedented. And so combined together, these things struck people as un-American, so much an American that they had to find explanation elsewhere. And so that was brainwashing, hostile enemy propaganda and kind of accusing finger turned to Russia because traditionally all these were associated with Russia. So there was a great deal of kind of media sensationalism and um, Kind of an inability to grasp initially the significance of Trump phenomena and some trolling from Putin, let's be honest. Um, and I think that subsequently Trump's support across the United States and the way that his administration conducted itself showed beyond doubt that all these things were homegrown. Um, everything that happened under the Trump administration and his own role in promoting divisions and telling lies made it really hard to blame Russia anymore. Um, and also many of these predictions about Trump's supposedly soft foreign policy towards Russia did not materialize either. So it became kind of more and more hard to blame, to kind of maintain the Russia blame scenario. And I think that kind of, and we see this in the discourse of this election, more and more people are realizing that Trump is an American phenomena and not just an American phenomena that now has global echoes elsewhere. So these past four years, we have seen a growing number of leaders um, around the world who use jingoistic national language, certain fascist attributes, and lies to mobilize their electorates. As more and more of these leaders come to power, the more it's difficult to kind of, you know, find Putin's evil hand in all these developments. And there is kind of a more realistic assessment of what's going on. Uh, your mention of social media actually comes to a question in the chat, um, because, you know, they in some respects, before the explosion of social media, there was a certain control, uh, for better or worse, over each each society's images of the and understandings of the other. Right, the role of of basically elites for the most part, diplomats, journalists, uh, and artistic people, etc., academics. But now with social media, it's like a complete explosion of of you know an uncontrolled explosion of imagery and tropes of each other um the question is 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 how 
it, in your assessment, how do you think social media affects the ways America and Russia see each other compared to the past? So I don't know if social media, okay, so I think that social media is imagined as a threat on both sides because both countries are effectively governed by older men who don't necessarily understand how technology works. And so we see social media comes to embody this threat to everything that we hold dear, maybe this Russian values or American democracy. And it kind of starts to embody this threat of kind of foreign funded hordes of propaganda infiltrating our people and brainwashing them. So the fear of social media associated with brainwashing and deceit, and then that fear plays into the rhetoric about the other and kind of becomes this like kind of pillar of why the other side is frightening. They are frightening because they can mobilize and manipulate social media to brainwash our people. I don't think that realistically social media makes Americans or Russians more or less informed about one another just because of how fragmented it is and, and how it's like effectively these different echo chambers. So you are very likely to learn from social media what you already know of value or believe in. So yeah, that's my response to that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's really striking from the halcyon days where social media was going to usher in freedom and democracy and bring us all together. <laughs> uh, Victoria, I, I don't know if you do you have any ins opinion on this? Yes, some words. Uh, first of all, uh, I would like to uh, say that, yes, of course, uh, we can retrace uh, positive influence uh, of uh, uh, social media and, uh, uh, for example, digital diplomacy, tweet diplomacy. We can, we can retrace this positive influence because uh, uh, in this case we are dealing with uh, the... Uh, market of opinion, but this is only one side of this uh, aspect. And another one is that we can retrace the deprofessionalization uh, uh, knowledge about each other uh, because uh, uh, very often non-specialists would like to create images and to create knowledge about uh, the other, about uh, the United States or about post-Soviet Russia, don't have uh, any real um, uh, background for this. And uh, the uh, possible negative influence of social media is the construction of new stereotypes uh, or the combination of old stereotypes and new stereotypes. And this is very important phenomena. And uh, in this case, uh, we can see there uh, some kind of new threat for mutual understanding. This is illusion that uh, we can broad our knowledge about each other via social media. Sometimes, yes, but very often, no. Very often, we can uh, find ourselves inside stereotypes environment and especially when we are talking about foreign policy yes we know about internal domestic policy but what is going on besides our national borders we open internet 
and uh, we uh, find uh, ourselves in the center of the huge bunch of visual images created by another person's. So what is going on in our mind? Uh, I don't uh, want to tell now about a real specialist on American studies or students from American studies program or Russian studies program. I'm talking about uh, common people, common people who are using the internet. And uh, we see the positive and negative uh, influence of digital diplomacy, of tweet diplomacy and uh, Donald Trump's uh, example is a good example in this case. But uh, at the same time, digital diplomacy is a very important instrument for better understanding, for the, uh, for the uh, message of uh, uh, own vision of national foreign policy or uh, the foreign policy of uh, another side, from another side. Mm -hmm. uh, here's a, a question for Dina from Masha Lipman, and I hope you're doing well, Masha. I, I can't believe it's been a year since we, we saw each other. Um, she says that given the constraints, uh, given the travel restrictions, et cetera, on both sides, especially in the earlier stages of the Cold War, um, what could foreign correspondents cover in terms of everyday life? And if was there ever a shift uh, in when this access to covering everyday life became easier? So I'm going to divide this into two halves because there's actually kind of quite a lot of difference between Americans and Soviet at the time. Um, both, so both Soviet American journalists uh, face travel restrictions that are defined, that, that are reciprocal, so they mirror each other and they cannot travel beyond certain radiuses of Moscow or Washington or New York City. So it's a state stage, sorry, staged, staged. Uh, so it's a based in Washington. So they cover the White House and the Congress and in uh, New York City, they cover the UN. Um, in the Soviet Union, American journalists are stationed in Moscow. And again, so there is like a very small radius outside of Moscow where they can travel. And if they want to travel beyond these uh, perimeters, they need to file for special permissions. Soviets uh, with the state and the justice departments, Americans with uh, the administration that kind of chaperones and babysits foreigners um, in the Soviet Union. So they couldn't travel much and they were followed pretty much, especially Americans in the Soviet Union, they were followed pretty much everywhere they went. Now, American journalists actually made a big effort to make as much as possible out of it. So you see them constantly lobbying to visit this place and that place and applying for permissions and kind of engaging in the kind of the bureaucratic game and constantly trying to broaden their horizons and constantly trying to go places, often without much success. Uh, so when they are successful to go to these places, they do kind of the best out of the circumstances and they do actually make an effort to travel and to go places. Uh, or to turn whatever it is they see around them into topics of um, articles, right? So, oh, I went to the market. I'm going to write about this. I saw people wearing interesting things on the street, or Americans thought they were drab and, and exciting things on the street. So, I'm going to write a piece about this. Uh, so, a lot of these pieces were about 
foreigners' experiences in the Soviet Union and what it is like to be a foreigner in the Soviet Union, but there was some kind of enterprise in reporting. Nonetheless, they also had, there was very heavy censorship applied. So they had to, they really kind of, I think, made the best out of circumstances that they dealt with. Soviets um, were much more timid about this, talking specifically about this kind of the, the early Cold Wars. The Soviets were much more timid about exploring and reporting. They were pretty worried, A, about, you know, coming across as co-towing to the United States. Um, to be honest, they didn't earn enough money to travel. And actually, so the Soviet authority, their editors really want them to go places and to write these like beautiful pieces about American culture and the life of American farmers and small cities. But in reality, their daily allowance is barely enough to kind of, you know, to sustain them. So let alone travel and explore the United States. Uh, there was a famous uh, saying in the U.S. press corps, in the foreign press corps in Washington, that when the Soviet journalists dared to ask a question at the presidential press conference, it became uh, front page news because, again, they were so kind of uh, timid and really held themselves. This changes dramatically with Stalin's death. So um, American journalists, kind of part of the diplomatic changes that happen uh, after Stalin's death and kind of this whole new relationship that is initiated under Khrushchev, the Soviets really want to reach to, reach out to American journalists and show them the Soviet Union and kind of, you know, mo kind of mobilize them and make them believe in the cause, so to speak. So they are opening more things to them. And so you see kind of front page of the New York Times writing something like a teacher is struggling, kind of teacher combining, I don't know, life and leisure in Soviet Armenia. And uh, a bus driver in Georgia is like, that's what his day looks like. So these really um, features about the average Soviet person um, become a really big thing after 53. And, and both kind of, they, they get a lot of access to all sorts of Soviet institutions like Kolkhoz and my young pioneer camp. And they also get more access to regular people. Again, this is not approaching what it's like to report from the socialist bloc, or obviously Western Europe, say, but by Soviet standards, this is very big. And it's a big change that manifests itself in the kind of reporting that Americans produce. Um, on the other side, the Soviets really radically reconsider what it is that foreign correspondents should be doing in the United States. And that aligns with this whole kind of uh, Khrushchev's foreign policy and new conception of Soviet Union's relationship with the world. So they also put forward this image of an activist journalist that is going to get out and make inquiries and going to have initiative and they're going to ask questions and explore and travel around. The salaries and their allowances start to match um, these expectations. And we see really kind of an absolutely new breed, like new type of Soviet international reporting that comes to exist from, say, 53, 55 onwards, there are younger people uh, who are very curious, who are much more liberated. They speak English very well. Uh, so they start travel around and again, explore, kind of showing America, uh, you know, in greater depths and diversity than before. Victoria, I, I don't know if do you have anything to add? Uh, only that uh, uh, if we're talking about uh, information concerning everyday life, 
uh, both uh, in uh, the Soviet Union and in the United States during the Cold War. Their uh, very important role uh, in this case uh, played citizen diplomats and participants of educational exchanges because they spent time in their families in another country, and uh, they received the opportunity uh, to know better their everyday life uh, of Americans or Soviet people. So this is important, very important uh, sources for uh, understanding of uh, everyday life on both uh, sides uh, of the Iron Curtain during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. um, here's a, another comment from the chat. Uh, it says, according to my personal experience working in an international NGO together with U.S. colleagues for more than 10 years, Russians in general are more curious with uh, regards to life in other countries, whereas Americans often don't believe what we told them about life, uh, about people in Russia. Now, this goes to a, a trope another trope that is relevant for, for you in your work, and that is the idea of, and, and it has a longer history, of course, than the Cold War, but the idea of the Potemkin village, that there's something, there's something always hidden, and, and the, the observer in the Soviet Union or in Russia is trying to get behind that curtain to reveal its reality. Uh, can you comment on that, Dina? Um, certainly. I mean, uh, scholars and colleagues have written eloquently and beautifully about the idea of Potomkin village and the role that it plays. I think it was pretty big in the, in the work of American journalists who were constantly convinced that there is a Potomkin village, that every time, so, so these official uh, excursions and visits and trips, they were convinced that these are staged specifically to dupe them, to present an image of the Soviet Union that was not necessarily corresponding to reality, to present a very, very beautiful picture of the Soviet Union. And that suspicion in turn translated into the work. And so it was reinforced, you know, over and over again. So the, the myth was uh, received further affirmation with each account and then shaping subsequent experiences again and again. I wondered, and I wonder in a book where sometimes um, it could be just, you know, clash of two different cultures. I mean, as a Russian person, I know that when you have a guest, you're going to lay out, you know, your best, uh, whatever, whatever is the best that you currently have in your house and going to kind of feed them and try to make them happy. And you are going to want to show, you know, the new school that you're being, that you're building in your house and whatnot, because you like to show nice things. Uh, so when this happened, American journalists would be convinced that what they are actually seeing is, you know, an effort to um, to deceive them and to uh, kind of put wool over their eyes and kind of present an image of the Soviet Union as it wasn't. And that was also like in turn then seen as a as kind of evidence of Russian inferiority and uh, fears vis-a-vis -vis foreigners. Yes, obviously fake displays were a thing or I mean, took place, but not to the extent um, that, you know, that people believe there is. And so that kind of set, that anticipation of Potomkinism and uh, thinking that you are observe, like that you are experiencing Potomkinism became really powerful. And so at some point it didn't matter whether it was or wasn't a stage display because the people who kind of 
is ever became convinced that this is what's happening, what's happening. So we're about out of time, but I'd like to give each of you a, a chance to say, you know, anything that you didn't get a chance to say or you'd like to add. Uh, Victoria, any final thoughts or words? I suppose that um, the Russian-American uh, mutual perception, in general, my study of Russian-American uh, relations and uh, mutual perceptions uh, is very important for better understanding of different trends, trajectories uh, inside bilateral relations. First of all, the, the American mutual perceptions have a cyclical char character in both uh, case, in both case, and uh, very often the national context determined and determines the hierarchy of the images, giving some of them the central roles and relegating uh, others to the periphery. Uh, the second very important uh, observation is that history of Russian-U.S. relations testifies to the fact that the periods of reproachment between Russia and the United States uh, and the rejection of simplified schemes of mutual understanding have uh, uh, always taken place during those times when Russia and the United States have expanded the pragmatic agenda of their relations in order to face a common enemy, address global challenges, and uh, 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 so on and so far. Such reproachment has also happened in times of political reform or economic modernization in the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, and post-Soviet Russia, when the United States exported goods, capital, and technologies, and Americans taught Russians the lessons of capitalism and reform. Uh, the third observation is that there are and there were two different American approaches to relations with Russia. An argument that persists to this day, the value-based approach in which relations depend on reforms within the country or the realistic approach, which takes for granted that Americans cannot change Russia, and so they must build a pragmatic collaboration wherever possible. In general, value-based approach that existed in Russian, Soviet, post-Soviet case, as well as the desire to use the other for domestic purposes, created in the past and still creating in the present real obstacles for better understanding in Russian-American relations. They need more pragmatism and second-track diplomacy. Uh, Force when the muses speak, ideological and political differences recede. Even if the dialogue between the politicians is once again difficult, uh, the nowadays crisis can no longer prevent the muses from speaking, as happened so often during the Cold War. This is what gives us hope as well as the study of each other for better understanding of the necessity to recognize the right of the opposing side to its differences and to take into account the other side's mentality and culture of perceptions, explain to each other who we are and where we are going. I, I mean, Victoria nailed it in the sense that the relationship is not inherently antagonistic. And it can be hopeful and productive and collaborative. Uh, and when this happens, it's at its best. And I think if there was ever a time since the Cold War where we needed this collaboration, that would be this time now when we are all facing global pandemic, a really kind of international thing. Um, I also wanted to say that I never thought 
I guess when I started this project over the years that I worked on it, I never thought that I would be nostalgic for Cold War correspondence or finding myself missing the world which they inhabited. Um, and I found myself doing this more and more these past four years. I think that regardless of the differences between two sides and regardless of the many disagreements and the sometimes really um, stereotypical representations, etc., observation and writing about the other side was governed by sympathy and knowledge. Um, there was a lot of no it was really knowledge informed and knowledge based knowledge about the other side was valued and appreciated and that knowledge driven analysis was important also empathy and sympathy like we said people are not evil uh seeing people as separate as a government seeing kind of recognizing shared humanity and looking for that shared humanity i think it would be great if we can get back to this in terms of our expert language and uh, coverage and reporting and conversation about each other if we return to that sympathy and knowledge-based analysis, I think it can help relations in many interesting ways and improve them tremendously. That was Dina Feinberg and Victoria Zhirilova. Dina Feinberg is an assistant professor of modern history at City University of London. She is a historian of US-Russia relations, Soviet media and propaganda, and Cold War culture. She's the co-editor of Reconsidering Stagnation, Ideology and Exchange in the Brezhnev Era, and her book, Cold War Correspondence, Soviet and American Reporters on the Ideological Front Lines, will be published in January 2021. Victoria Zhirovlova is a professor of American History and International Relations, chair of the American Studies Department, and vice dean of the Faculty of International Relations and Area Studies at the Russian State University for the Humanities in Moscow, Russia. Her research interests are American history with a specialization in Russian and American relations and US foreign policy. She's the author of many books and articles, including Understanding Russia in the United States, Images and Myths, published in Russian, and editor of Russian Soviet Studies in the United States, Americaniska in Russia, Mutual Representations in Academic Projects, published in English. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued support and patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.